0: Welcome back to Real Nursing, an account of my first terrifying year as a nurse. For all of those who um, are curious about nursing or maybe are in your first year or so of nursing and um, you can feel that you are right where you're supposed to be if you are scared out of your mind, as I was. (laughs) So we left off last time with episode 2 being mid-August of my preceptorship. Um, it's going to pick up again here in, in late August on the 29th of 2012. And um, still current, I was still on um, my preceptorship at the time, hadn't gotten out on my own yet. But um, I am going to give you an account of a couple of the patients um, that I cared for during that time. So I hope you enjoy. It always intrigues me to look at the history and physical report for any given patient particularly the social history paragraph. It seems to whittle the person down to the tiniest nutshell. M.B. is a 49-year-old male with a history of smoking two packs per day times 20 years. He quit five years ago. Denies the use of caffeine or illicit drugs. He is divorced for the second time and drinks seven to eight beers per week. He works as a high school Spanish teacher. Sometimes as I read over this section I imagine what my own social history would sound like. T S is a thirty two year old female whose tobacco use extends to one swisher sweet per year. She drinks two to four cu- cups of coffee per day, depending on if it's a work day or not, more on work days. Due to her older sister's liberal experimentation in her college days, she is terrified of any and all drugs, including prescriptions. She is divorced and happily shacking up with her firefighter lieutenant boyfriend. She enjoys her libations, anything from a crisp blue moon to a tangerine and tonic to a double serving of yellowtail pinot noir. She is a recent nursing school graduate who is muddling her way through the latter half of her 12-week long orientation. This week I realized that one of the most difficult patients for me to handle thus far is the anxious patient. I find myself taking on their energy, in spite of my attempts to use Cesar Milan's techniques of putting forward calm energy and hoping they will follow. Okay, okay, so it's intended to be used on canines, but I thought I'd give it a shot. This week's report started with a 90-year-old woman who was, quote, a little anxious and confused, unquote, after receiving a dose of Ambien at 2200 the previous evening. I decided to start my morning assessments with her, and quickly found the nurse's report to be an understatement. She was practically climbing the walls. She had pulled her gown down around her waist and was attempting to get up out of the bed just as I walked into the room. I spoke in a calm tone as I helped her back to bed, but she continued to be tachypnick and her eyes darted around the room as she asked me why she was so confused. As I reminded her about the Ambien, she had taken the evening before and suggested it might be the cause of her confusion. I also did a quick neuro check. Other than her disorientation to place, the neuro check was within normal limits and her oxygen saturation was 97% on 2 liters nasal cannula in spite of her rapid mouth breathing. There were no adventitious lung sounds and I was stumped. As if on cue, a respiratory therapist walked by the room,
1: and not knowing what
0: else to do, I asked him if he could possibly provide a breathing treatment. He listened to her lungs and looked at me as if I was the biggest moron on the face of the earth. She's wet, and there's nothing nothing I'm going to do that will help that, he said with a sigh. Hmm, I thought to myself, what would her incontinence have to do with her breathing? A split second later, thinking, God, I hadn't said that out loud and sounding like an even bigger idiot, wet lung sounds, of course, but I hadn't heard a thing. At the moment of my reckoning, the physician strolls in and asks, as they always do, so what's going on with Mrs. Snyder? For some reason, this question always irritates me beyond reason. I get a vision of the physician just coming off the golf course and wanting me to put the pieces together for him or her so that he or she can make exorbitant amounts of money for spending two minutes with the patient and writing a page worth of illegible orders for me to follow through, which the following physician to round on that patient will undoubtedly undo. She whipped her stethoscope out and listened, commenting that the lung sounds were diminished but clear. Ha! I was vindicated, but the respiratory therapist had already taken his leave. Nevertheless, she starts barking out orders which include sublingual nitro and IV LASIK STAT. What she didn't seem to grasp is that STAT is only as fast as she can write it so that the pharmacy can input it so that I can pull it out of the omni-cell, which in reality isn't very STAT at all. It's times like these that I realize how much of all our technology creates roadblocks to patient care when it's supposed to be improving it. Did I mention this patient also had an overbearing daughter? who was scrutinizing my every move. I scrambled to follow through on the physician's orders, and hoped that my other three patients were still breathing. Inside 20 minutes, all of the medications were on board, and the patient was beginning to relax, though I suspect it was more psychological than physiological. Just before leaving the floor, the physician walked up to me and asked, What's your name? Uh Uh-oh. Here we go, I thought. Damn. As I glanced down at my name tag, I realized that for once it wasn't turned around the wrong way, hiding my name. Tanya, I said with feigned confidence, to which she stuck out her hand. I took it in her firm handshake as she said, Good job today, Tanya. Words that took her less than five seconds to say, but that I would rehearse in my head in the months to follow as a sort of mantra every time I felt in over my head. Later that day, as two of my patients went for procedures, I had a rare and precious moment with the lonely 85-year-old widower whose 16-year-old cabbage was beginning to fail. Miracle of miracles, I was caught up with meds and documentation. So I sat down with him and listened as he told me about what a jewel his wife had been and how he enjoyed working on a farm in his younger days. The reminiscing was abruptly halted when someone called me on my vocera, a device that ensures you are always available even in the midst of a bathroom break. Tanya your patient in 454 is back from his cath. Unwillingly jolted from story time I rose to my aching feet and thanked him for sharing a bit of his life with me. Any time, kiddo and as I walked out of the room he added love ya. I felt a pang of sadness as I wished, we had more times like these to give to our patients. Pushing those thoughts out of my head and onto the task at hand, I grabbed two sheath pull kits and made my way to room 454. The patient was a 28-year-old male, the youngest person I had ever performed a sheath pull on. He had been suffering from sustained supraventricular tach- ventricular tachycardia, which began when he was only 19. Apparently, he was also suffering from an inflated ego. As I held pressure on his right groin, his eyes bored into me, and he began making comments that made me curse my fair skin and tendency to blush. He didn't miss this, of course, and informed me that redheads have more niacin in their systems, which, according to him, explained the eight shades of red I was turning. I had the sudden urge to release the pressure on his groin and inform him that my niacin would be minding its own business if he would stop his intellectual flirtations. Instead, I just maintained my position, focusing on the task at hand, while wondering why situations like this never make it into nursing school case studies. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to sharing more stories from Real Nursing next time.